Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. And, uh, oh, man, where do I even start this week? I don't know, but you got to start somewhere because this is a big story. Um, well, first of all, my wife, Caitlin, is back from a trip and helping me. If you didn't hear the Amanda Freitag uh, show two episodes ago, uh, I'm trying to do these intros without a script, and it seems to help me to have another person here. So Caitlin is back in the co-pilot seat for the introduction of the show. Um, thank you. Um, and uh, so this is not a current event show. Uh, the show I used to do with Jimmy Bradley called The Front Burner here on Heritage was a current event show. And I wish I had a current event show right now because... Um, everybody, even people who probably aren't, you know, foodies or people who are in the industry have probably seen, uh, you know, in, in the more general world, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was the Harvey Weinstein story broke. And in the, in the restaurant industry this weekend, the, the John Besh story broke, uh, Brett Anderson of the Times Picayune spent months working on a piece. Um, he interviewed about 25 women. Uh, who have all all came forward with stories of harassment, um, I guess we'd say coercion, um, and and other really horrible behavior under the umbrella of John Besh's restaurant company. Uh, yesterday, I'm recording this Tuesday. On Monday, John Besh left his own company. Um, as we sit here on Tuesday morning, um, uh, Cosmo Goss, who co-authored uh, the Publican Cookbook and is the chef of the Publican. Um, is out of the publican. And that was a one-incident event. Uh, there was apparently, and the, the details are a little vague in the news, but a, 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 an inappropriate photograph, as it was described, of a female employee was being circulated in the company, and Cosmo, uh, I guess, uh, had seen it, been aware of it, as, as the leader, at least, of the kitchen, um, didn't do anything to uh, curtail it and, and put an end to it. And... Um, he is now out of the company. I suspect that um, event, the way it was described, was already in motion before the news broke this weekend. Um, but, um, you know, in the wake of the the Besh story, I think uh, we're going to start seeing uh, stories like this on a semi-daily basis. Um, I, I It's going to be painful. Um, I think it is, um, as we were talking before the show, it's a really bad thing. Uh, what happened in the past. It's a very good thing what's about to happen, although ripping this Band-Aid off is going to be, I think, genuinely shocking to a lot of people. Um, and I didn't know how to start a show that has chefs in the name uh, and to be a part of this community, uh, not immediately, but as someone who writes about it, and not address this moment at the top of this show. So I just did want to take a moment. Um, and I will say, it has been, and and maybe... Uh, Maybe I'm naive. Um, maybe this just speaks to the obviously vastly different experiences of men and women. Um, but the women I have been speaking to since the Weinstein story broke, um, and I used to work in the film business, um, 
I'm not shocked that this kind of thing goes on. I am shocked by the um, frequency of it. How blatant it is. The blatant, how blatant and seemingly un... Um, apologetic. Well, unapologetic, but also just, you know, it, it seems to happen uh, not quite in plain sight, but in, in ways that uh, are just... Uh, the behavior's amazing. Uh, I don't even know. It, it's, it's just... It's almost inconceivable. And it also... Um, uh, I have to say, having spent the amount of time in the number of kitchens that I've spent it in, I have never um, seen it. Uh, I've never heard um, talk of it. Um, you know, you do hear whispers about, oh, so-and-so is kind of a dog and that kind of stuff. But, you know, the 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 I guess, you know, I'm not going to apply this to anyone specific. I don't want to get sued. But, you know, the criminal behavior that's uh, basically institutionalized it seems is 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 breathtaking it's absolutely breathtaking and not a single woman i've discussed this with uh over a coffee or a drink or on the phone or by email is surprised i'm not surprised at all right so it is um it's a very illuminating moment i think for a lot of people i guess mostly for men so um and i i think probably a very empowering moment for women which is as it should be and um I did want to say, this is, while this is not a current event show, um, if there is a chef out there, and I'll put this out there very broadly, I don't know if it would be a female chef, which probably seems most appropriate, um, or a male chef, or maybe a, a male and a female chef together, um, uh, but I would be happy, not happy is the wrong word, I would like to spend an episode of this show uh, on this topic. It's not really what this show was designed to be, and this is meant as a biographical show. It's meant as sort of a bantery, fun show for people. Uh, but again, I, I just felt like I didn't know how to start a show this week uh, about this uh, without mentioning this subject. And uh, people can get in touch with me pretty easily. You can DM me on one of my social media accounts, which uh, on Instagram and Twitter, that's Tokeland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D, Andrew. Uh, and, uh, the show's account is at chef podcast, also on Twitter and Instagram, or you could shoot me an email. It's Andrew at Tokeland, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D dot com. I do only do in-person interviews. Uh, it's the only way I feel like a show of this length works. So it would need to be somebody based in New York or who was visiting New York or who wanted an excuse to come to New York. Um, but please reach out because it's something that I would like to, uh, devote at least one show to doing. I do think it's something that's going to very much, um, it's going to be the story of the industry for the remainder of this year and probably a good piece of next year. And, and also I think other industries, you know, we haven't really seen it break out yet in the political world where it, that is inevitable. Um, and you know, there'll be more inter entertainment industry pieces. The James Toback story broke this year. And again, that, I have to say, was one story that was not at all shocking to me. People have been talking uh, in the worst terms about that guy since I was still in the business, which was in the 90s. Um, in any event, uh, all of that said, uh, let's get on to this week's show, which, having spent you know the last couple minutes mired in the mud, um, it, we have a delightful show for everybody. Um, Stephen Harris, and Stephen, I'm really sorry that uh, we had to start your show off this way. It's just... Uh, you know, you're a former history teacher. Current events sometimes intrude. Um, Stephen is, uh, first of all, our first international guest. He is uh, from the UK. He is the chef owner of The Sportsman, which is in Seasalter, Kent. 
Uh, the Sportsman is a Michelin-starred restaurant. For the last two years, uh, both in 2016 and 2017, uh, the Sportsman won top honors, the top spot in the National Restaurant Awards, named the best restaurant in the UK the last two years. And the reason Stephen is in New York is he is on a promotional tour for his brand new cookbook, The Sportsman. That's the title. There's no subtitle. It's simply called The Sportsman after the restaurant. And it is a book that not having been to the restaurant, I think I could say I feel like I've been there uh, from this book. It really captures what the restaurant is known for, which is Stephen's very personal, very intelligent take on uh, what he refers to as the terroir of the area where the restaurant is located, uh, making use of the ingredients of the area, of the produce uh, of the area, um, of, you know, it's right on the coastline. He even makes his own salt. Um, and uh, that is something that really comes through in the book, which is basically divided into Stephen's story, uh, profiles of key people in the restaurant, and 50 recipes from the restaurant. Uh, Stephen is a former punk rocker. He had at least two other careers that I know of and uh, didn't find the kitchen professionally until almost the age of 30. And we get into his entire story uh, in this interview, which took place um, at his hotel in the Flatiron area of New York City um, this Monday. So I think that's all. Do I need to say anything else? Oh, well, thank you. It's all him. It's all him. He's, he was just a, he's a smart, charming, engaging uh, guy with just a fascinating story. And uh, that's it. That's all I have to say. So, which is a lot this week. Anyway, with all that and, and, and uh, with the abrupt shift in tone, I do hope everyone enjoys what I think is a delightful interview with the delightful Stephen Harris of The Sportsman recorded this Monday in New York City. Here you go. So how you've been? How long since you arrived in New York? I came in yesterday. Yesterday, so Sunday. Yep. And and, um, and just today. Yeah. Adjusting. Adjusting. Acclimating. A bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Knackered now. Middle of the <laughs> afternoon, and I'll be wide awake at two in the morning. Right. So I should say we're in your hotel room. Yeah. Uh, but we do have a chaperone. We do have. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We're not. Meg Parson from Fiden. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, um, well, thank you for making the time to join us today. That's all right. Um, you, uh, I, you know, it's funny. We just met for the first time. Mm. Uh, people, uh, I don't know what to call it. You know, people, do uh, you don't have people, do people call you chef? Do you no, go in for that? No, you no. seem like someone who doesn't go in for that part of oh, the, part no, of the game. I am exactly the opposite. Yeah. Too. In fact, when I first went in a professional kitchen and everybody referred, kept saying, yes, chef, I thought they were saying Jeff. <laughs> I thought the chef's name was Jeff, and um, I didn't realise so that you should that you know um, that that's what you do. Yes, it's a very funny thing. I'm particularly amused at how quickly and easily Americans will adopt the French manner, like they do it with restaurants as well. I'm very I'm. You mean in the you mean in the dining room as yeah, well? Yeah, the, the the you know French is the language. Of, yeah of great food. Yes. Which is understandable. Like English is the language of whatever, commerce maybe, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, we all literature. Have, yeah, maybe, but it's just weird. Intelligence. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Modesty. French kind of 
is the language of, of, of restaurants. So it's quite strange because you hear somebody like Gordon Ramsay talking fluent French. And of course, sure. I remember, of course, he lived there for a couple of years. Well, what's funny know. to me is that that's persisted. I mean, you now have yeah. Spain as a, as a culinary world power and you have, um, um, you have uh, Scandinavia, obviously, is very much involved. But, but, the, yeah. but the way the French language still gets tossed around a kitchen. Yeah, uh, that's quite nice. It's, it's still, kind of, that's never really gone away. It's quite romantic. I think we challenge it a bit more in English because we live next to the French. Right. So we have got, we're a bit more chippy. You're a bit more invested thing. in. Well, the thing is, we invented, you know, as far as the world's concerned, the French invented cooking and we invented football. Yeah. So, you know, now they're better at football than we are. Okay. So, you know, we want to be better at cooking than this. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. One day. So how did you, uh, you have a very, uh, you had a long and winding road to uh, the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, but why don't you tell me a little bit about where, where you grew up and, and what, you, what you thought you were going to do with your life before you found yourself cooking? Yes. Yeah, um, grew up in Whitstable, which mm-hmm. is the t- uh, if anybody knows, um, is 60 miles from London. Okay. Um, In which direction? Uh, uh, east uh-huh. and uh, the North Kent coast. Okay. The North Kent coast um, is uh, the coast of the Thames estuary. Okay. So as the Thames flows out of London, um, it, it eventually reaches Whitstable and the widest part of the estuary, which is where we are. And that is the, um, it's known as the home of the oyster. Okay. So it's oyster town. And Whitstable was built pretty much on a um, on the oyster trade. Uh, so that was the town that I grew up in. Um, I I was um, I was a I was um, quite good at school, you know, I, academically I you were. used to, I used to do well. I ended up at university mm-hmm. studying history at King's College in London. Um, which is, you know, a good university. What did you uh, think you were going to do with that degree? Well, I didn't really know. I, I, that was one of the problems, was mm-hmm. that I didn't really know. I, I instantly react against being put into a box. And right. they even called it, they used to, at the end of the university, they used to have something called the milk round. And that was where you would go to a kind of a big conference hall or something and all of the low all of the big companies oh like sure the accountancy firms and this is what that. we call a career fair here oh, in the career states fair. well we sure. called it the milk round mm-hmm. which makes it sound fairly um which makes you makes you feel like you're being cattled sure. into corralled yeah. into um into a career in accountancy or anything like that that idea horrified me so i think i'd always had i'd already been through the punk years mm-hmm. and i you know i've been realizing more and more over the last few weeks as i've been talking about the book that punk was such an important thing to, to for your attitude yes you know musically it wasn't any great shakes it was pretty much 60s garage bands yeah. turned up a bit more yes. but um it was um the attitude was there which was that i didn't I didn't really like being told what to do. I didn't like authority. I don't mind it if somebody knows what they're doing or there's a reason, but I felt that there were a lot of people who hadn't really earned the right to tell you what to do, telling you what to do. Or that it was a, if I'm, if I'm going to make an assumption, please tell me if I'm wrong, but also that there were these, these sort of predetermined pathways for a young person were not mm. really examined. They were, they were sort of by rote. Yeah. There was a path that you followed. It was... Uh, you go to school and yep. you take up a profession and usually it's something that involves yep. probably a, a sport coat and, or a suit and a tie. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you did. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and, and I, 
reacted against that. I yeah. didn't want to be an accountant. I didn't want to be a lawyer. These were all the things that all my friends have gone on to. I mean, yeah. of course, they're all now millionaires and own law firms in sure. London and all that kind of stuff. So, you know. But they, you're happy. Uh, I'm ha- yeah, but that's the weird <laughs> thing. When I meet up with a group of old friends, yeah. I'm the one that everyone goes, wow, yeah. that was great. You know, yeah. because I think because, you know, I'm always the one that everyone's like, oh, were you really kind of did it on your own terms. Right. And, and you broke yeah. out of the mold. You're like yeah, the uh, like the old Apple uh, commercial. You're the one who broke out of the line and threw the yeah, well, thing through that, the screen. Maybe that's why it's... An, yeah, that seems to be the way. Because like you said, I grew up in a town... I was sports mad, you know. I was cricket and football. And then as, a, had, as a fan, or you actually no, were athletic? I was very, I was a good, very good cricketer. Mm-hmm. I kind of had trials for Kent. Oh, so, really? You know, I was, I was one of the top kind of quite a good cricketer for my generation. I was a very good footballer, but I had a really bad car crash when I was very young. Ooh. And um, I broke both my legs and my arm, and I was in hospital for six months, and I couldn't play football for two years. Oh man! Because of complications. Was that heartbreaking? Like. It was for a, I was only ten, and um, I know it sounds silly, but I was kind of a. I was already well on the way, you know. I assumed that I'd be a footballer. That was what I wanted to be. Oh man! Um, but um, I then played cricket instead, and I did very well at cricket. Yeah. Cricket, but never. I was always. I think that's one of the reasons why. This time round, I knew how hard you have to work to really make a success of something. Because I'd been quite good at everything, you know. I was quite Mm -hmm. good academically. I was quite good at sports. Were you naturally good at these things, or did it require a lot of work on your behalf? No, quite naturally. You were were very good. It annoyed my family a lot. Mm -hmm. My brothers particularly, because... They wish they'd had your talent. Yeah, yeah, I I just found things quite easy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know why, but... um, it kind of can count against you because you get a bit lazy, yeah. you know. Like when you really like with this to to become what the sportsman has become. Yes, I had to kind of learn my lesson from. Yeah, you know, why didn't I follow through with the sport and the music? You know, because right. I, I we also had a record contract when I was yeah. fifteen. You know. Yeah. Well, before was, we move off that, yeah, can yeah, I get this yeah. story from you? What mm. what's, what was your history with music? Because it does come up. Um, and it does yeah. come up in the context of food, which we'll get to in a little bit. Mm. But can we get sort of the thumbnail yep. version of your musical career? Okay. <laughs> so, that was a G, by the way. Um, sorry. Uh, I, yeah, my musical thing was that I, um, I loved music from a very early age. I had an older brother who was big into music. And uh, so, you know, when you've got an older brother you kind of get into stuff maybe earlier than other people. Yeah, sure. So... Because you have a guide. Exactly. Yeah. And during the... uh, To put it in context, before punk happened, we were like punks before it happened. We didn't like the way music was going. It was very much kind of Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, great big shows that cost millions of pounds, banks and banks of very expensive equipment. Yeah. And music had kind of pulled away from a little band in a club yeah which is what i think great rock and roll music is it's a small band in a club Mm -hmm. you know if you sure you know i'd love to see the beatles at shea stadium but it was over by then wasn't it it was the cavern that's what you your dream is to see i saw so i saw like you know when i was growing up joe strummer before in his band before the clash you know amazing yeah about this size you did you know? have any sense of seeing someone like that of what they were going to become joe strummer was a superstar you knew the that when you second saw him, you yeah. saw him yeah 
you just knew you were in the presence of somebody yeah. seriously special. I saw the jam in a room, <sighs> a tiny little room, you know. Yeah. All these bands before. So when punk came along, we were... I, I was already playing guitar, but I'd been listening... We'd been listening, like all of the punks in England, we'd been listening to... Um, the MC5, mm-hmm. uh, Iggy and the Stooges, the mm-hmm. New York Dolls, a lot of American music. Also the 60s English garage bands that never made it. And then that kind of American weird thing. Because everyone was watching England during the 60s, sure. however good a band you were in America in the mid-60s, and you know, there are a few exceptions, nobody heard your music. Didn't matter. So, so yeah. we went back and covered things like Question Mark and the Mysterians, 96 Tears, um, the Standells, you know, and, and people like that yeah. and the Seeds and these yeah. kind of bands and songs like good, sometimes good guys don't wear white so mm-hmm. there was all this great music which no one had heard and like all, a lot of movements we kind of got into all that side of things and when punk came along we were kind of ready we were almost waiting for something to happen this sort of gave voice to what was going on yeah, in your head individually and in, it, as a group conversationally it and it, it sort of put voice to all that and, Ex- and rhythm exactly it resonated just, with it just to contextualize yeah, we yeah. don't have to say okay. and your exact age and we mm. won't say my exact age but you were yep. you were literally a child of the 60s you were a child I was in, born the in the 60s I was born in 1961 yeah. so okay. I was 15 when punk came along okay just to contextualize yeah, 15, this for people. I was a yeah. teenager. I was ready for it. I already could play the guitar a bit. Yeah. And um, so, and we were already playing kind of, you know, these kind of Chuck Berry kind of style stuff, but very loud, a yeah. bit like, very like the New York Dolls. They were, mm-hmm. we, we covered a few of their songs. We did Trash and Pills by the New York Dolls. We loved Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. Yeah. Um, you know, that was, that was what we were. And we loved the Beatles and the Stones as well. Sure. You know, so, but we just wanted exciting music. Right. We didn't want, you know, I tried to listen to Tales from a Topographic Ocean by <laughs> Yes, and I fell asleep yeah. until right. somebody went on so, the synthesizer. In terms of you musically, though, you, are, you were self-taught, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And how, how did you even know that you were capable of teaching yourself something that most people would think to go out and hire an instructor for? Yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? But back then, there weren't, there was nobody who could teach you how to play rock and roll guitar. It was like you had to start off, I said Frankie and Johnny, you know, you had to right. start off with all this kind of folk guitar before you, you know, there was no way of learning. So I did what I, this is why I see parallels with the food. I did what I did with food. I went to gigs, stood at the front yeah. and watched the guitarist. Yeah. Then I went home talk to as few people as possible, go home, and then copy what he did. So you were looking at, it's funny, I'm a big tennis fan, and I have friends who will go to the US Open, get as close mm-hmm. as they can to a court. They want to see the grips. Exactly. They want to see how the yeah. guys are holding their racket. Yeah. You were actually watching the hands. Yeah. And yeah. you would imitate that. Yeah, and then I'd go home, pl- get my guitar, and yeah. copy what, and that's how I learned how and to play. And that was able to, that worked. Yeah, that kind of Chuck Berry kind of rhythm and all that stuff. and. And the chord shapes. Um, and was this an, were you obsessive about it? In other words, did you get good just through sort of trial and error and having a good ear and being able to sort of make corrections in your own? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I, I actually haven't got a great ear. I can't do what other friends. I had another friend who could put a track on, you know, put on the old vinyl, put a track on, yeah, and then work it out. I yeah. couldn't do that. So, but that can be good because. <coughs> I would try and play somebody else's songs, sure. mess it up, and I had my own song. Right. So I, com- I became a composer through <laughs> not being able to, to work imitate. out other people's That's songs. That's very funny. Yeah. What about culinarily? What was your childhood like uh, or your early, early years like in terms of 
uh, how, how, I guess, how well you ate, however you would define that, and just your interest in food in, in general? Um, we ate well at home, but not, it wasn't, uh, there was no suggestion of, uh, you know, what came later, you mm -hmm. know, we were just an ordinary family. My mum, we had, there were five of us. So, yeah. you know, she just was a practical cook. Sure. So she, and you know, now looking back on it, you think, God, that was a, you know, if your mum's cooking shepherd's pie or, you know, that kind of cod and parsley sauce now, you'd think, wow, you, you'd lucked out. But yeah. back then that was just normal. So your mum would cook, you know, sure. a really nice meal every night and you didn't feel like it was anything... But now looking back on it... You had think, it pretty good. Yeah, we did. It was good. It was nice. The interesting thing was, was my dad was a, a real estate agent for businesses, in mm -hmm. particular restaurants. So say you had a restaurant and it, you, know, you wanted to sell it. Yeah. You'd go to, into my dad's office yes. and sell... And, and you'd say to him, I've got a restaurant I want to sell. My dad's job was then to put you in touch with people who wanted to buy them. Yes. Um, and that was, um, that was quite interesting because... It meant that we felt very comfortable as a family in the world of restaurants. Yes. So my dad would take us, you know, we'd go, I mean, not, I'm not talking great restaurants, but my dad would take us, you know, we, we were familiar with them, you know, and, and we, um, we felt comfortable among, yes. in restaurants, which I guess is uh, maybe not normal, you know, mm -hmm. if I could think of anything that made us stand out i was always obsessed by t by flavor and taste you I were mean, yeah i remember on the way back from school making all my friends come round to taste a baked um bread roll it excited with you ice cold butter on it warm out of the oven and i just would get obsessed by things like that and you wanted to share it yeah which is that, a very chefy yeah, exactly. sort of uh, instinct and i was 14 you know interesting so, yeah, you know, silly little things like, have you tasted how good a freshly baked bread roll is with a big slab of right, butter? Right, the way another kid might play a piece of music for somebody yeah, or, or I so. play a, a little sport, tell a joke. Know, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or show them a, yeah. a comedian or... So, the, yeah, the, I yeah. guess... The, you wanted other people to experience... Do you want to share that experience? Yeah, slightly evangelical about, uh -huh. about a bread roll <laughs> and butter. But, you right. know, it's, it's not a bad analogy for what came yeah. later, really. So you end up going... Um, Professional, I guess we say. Mm -hmm. uh, for how long? How long were you in what we would? What, what career did you find yourself in ultimately? Oh, uh, after university. Yeah, yeah. So I went to London, studied history, mm -hmm. and then for three years I was a history teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really know what to do, and I, it was the first job I applied for, and I got. Yeah. You know? So I taught history for three years, which I loved. You did, um, but it was just great. Uh, you know, kind of eleven to sixteen year olds. It was nothing. Uh, Highly academic. So this was general world history, yeah, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I loved dealing with kids, you yeah. know, every day. They're such good fun to be with. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and trying to make history exciting. Yes. I was very kind of keen on that. Did you bring um, sort of, a, having been a musician, did you bring sort of an element of performance? I don't mean in any extravagant way, but do you feel like that gave you a comfort level? Oh, I think, I think that helps if you're a teacher. Yeah, I that's think, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I think if you're a teacher... To be an engaging person in front of them is yeah. important. You see, I was I taught in a kind of inner city London school that was quite rough, but I always thought it's my job to make the subject interesting. These kids will mess around if if you let them. Sure. But if you fill the vacuum yeah. with interesting ideas, you know, say you'd say, you know, uh, I used to do something called the school's history project, which was an attempt in England to make history very much about, you know, more interesting. And you'd say, you'd, you'd 
create a paradox, say, why did America lose the Vietnam War? Sorry if that's news to anyone, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? Hopefully not to my listeners, <laughs> but, but how did, you never know. But no, but you know what I mean? How did the most powerful country in the world yeah. lose a war, in a sense, yes. to the, this tiny little yeah. bunch of guys on a load of bicycles, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, of course, to solve that paradox, because yes. they all knew the Vietnam War, because there were loads of like Rambo and all those films sure. coming out then. Um, and so... To solve that paradox, you need to understand concepts. So one would say, why didn't they just nuke them so? And it would be like, why didn't they? And right. then another one would say, well, maybe uh, they weren't. you couldn't really use them. What if the fallout went into China, you know? Yes. And then they'd start understanding, and it's, that's geopolitics. And you've got a load of 11, 12-year-olds. Right. Or maybe a bit older, 13, 14-year-olds, understanding concepts and, yes. de- and using concepts, which... which if you were trying to teach them in a strict academic way, they would never be able to grasp, and yet they were understanding. So you were able to bring an immediacy to what to a lot of people seems like just something that happens almost just in the pages of a book. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and trying to make it real, because yeah. they do understand these ideas, because yeah. they're interactions with human beings. They understand these ideas, but as soon as it becomes academic and part of school, they kind of tune out. Yeah, right? it's funny, when I at my university, I went to Columbia University here in New York, City mm. and uh, Brzezinski, uh, the, who had been yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what was the title, National Security Director? I think mm. um, might be wrong on the exact title. Yeah. But at the end of the course, I didn't ever took this course, but it was famous at the time. He gave he created a world crisis situation, mm. and you were supposed to make your recommendation to the president. Oh, right. That was the final oh, exam. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, it, yeah. but the I remember on one of them, one of the possible options uh, mm. was Newcomb? Question mark. Yeah, um, but and it was yeah, but there's nothing right. like making that those things uh, palpable. To they someone. are, and in a group discussion, yeah. particularly because one person will say, well, "Well, you know, they've got nuclear weapons. Why didn't they use them?" And yeah. then all of the objections to it come yes. along. Well, you can't, um, you know fallout um you know uh, it would look really bad you know yeah. like bullying and blah blah and all these right. kind of things and that's politics that's yeah, geopolitics that's when you break it down that's and what then, it is so you've got a load of kids who are trying to solve but but the reason they're drawn in is because they know about the vietnam war because lots of films are being made about it so they're interested right. so if you can get them to solve and they are interested in lots of things princes in the tower you know about the uh, english Princes who were murdered by Richard the Second, you know, yeah. that, those kind of, sorry, Richard the Third. And um, you get that kind of, you know, you've just got to draw them in with an interesting subject, yeah. you know. So, how do you, uh, well, I'm sorry, after, after yeah, teaching yeah. history, I don't want to uh, jump ahead. Well, I, I didn't earn any money and I, sure. I couldn't afford to go out yeah. uh, in London when I was a teacher. So, a friend of mine was working in the city, which is, you know, Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So, the equivalent of Wall Street, and said, uh, Do you want to come and work for me? as a financial consultant, which actually in the end was a sales job, selling pensions and bonds mm-hmm. and things like that. I did that for a few years, and I met a lot of nice people, but I hated it. Sure. You know? um, such a, it seems like this is... Um, this happens to so many people, I think, who end up finding themselves in kitchens that they, they don't just... They, don't, they did not just not like a prior career. Mm. It was... Misery for them. <laughs> yeah, so anything else would anything do. Anything else, right. <laughs> but Well, or yeah. that nothing but the kitchen would do, mm. ultimately. That, I mean, the, the, the way I look at yeah. it is it, they really seem to just be... I've met so many people who were doing something else, or even for a lot... This was not the case with you, but people who really almost metabolically incompatible with formal education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People who end up no, it's cooking. True. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, I think there is... 
also a certain amount of desperation where if you end up in a kitchen you yeah. have to, you want to be there for a reason yeah because it's the say. worst place in the world if you haven't got a real reason if that's one of the big differences you know i when i went into a kitchen yeah i was so motivated that i i shamed other people not deliberately but accidentally because i was so motivated and in such a hurry yeah you know that they often would look at themselves and think god this guy's going somewhere and i'm right you know, why, what am i doing here that, yeah that was common yeah a common thing i'm sure it was you know so tell me that you had a um you say in the book i hope we're not I, technically i consider this a cookbook mm. uh you do tell quite a bit of your story so i hope i'm not <coughs> i hope i'm not going to spoil anything as we're talking but you do say in the book that yeah. you don't necessarily believe in what you refer to as light bulb moments but you do have a few light bulb uh, yeah, moments never, in your career. It's difficult, isn't it? Uh, but tell, why don't you tell me about this dinner in 1992, this this mm. uh, formative dinner that you experienced? Yeah, well, I I, I was a I was a good um, amateur cook. Mm -hmm. So, for example, friends, you know, would come around and watch the football or soccer, and um, I'd you know, bunch of guys back in the 80s watching football. I'd be making pizzas or mm -hmm. kind of. Um, you know, it's Turkish food from a book or something. You know, I would always cook for my friends. And that yes. Was, you know, that was quite unusual um, back then. Uh, I didn't think of, of that much, but I would. I was a very good amateur cook. And so I, I knew my way around ingredients in a kitchen and yes. all that stuff already. And this was, again, just as with the guitar, this was self-taught. Yeah, yeah, but, 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 but I loved it. And um, I'd have to really rack my brain to think where that all began. But... Um, uh, I just loved cooking, and but as I say, I was just a good kind of amateur cook, cooking for pleasure to, and to give people pleasure. Yes. You know that's that's very important, I suppose. And I, um, what happened was that because I was in the financial industry, uh, I ended up if we had a good month, mm -hmm. we would end up going to a good restaurant. You, know? you and your colleagues, yeah, okay, yeah, my colleagues from work. So I went with two other colleagues, a guy called Luke, a guy called Mark, and we went to um, Shea Nico at 90 Park Lane. Now, I'd never heard of what... A, I didn't even know what a Michelin star was. Right. Now everybody knows, you know, mm -hmm. like um, in England, you know, everybody, you know, even 10-year-olds know sure. what Michelin... You know, I get my little cousins or, you know, coming up and saying, have you really got a Michelin star? You know, so everyone knows. I didn't know what one was, and I was 30. Mm -hmm. And I had I went and had this meal, and it was a two Michelin starred restaurant in Park Lane, so very expensive at a very posh hotel, and it blew my mind. What blew your mind about uh, it? The perfection, the concentrate, the uh, everything tasted elevated, suit like like a color brighter than you've ever seen, and all this kind of stuff perfection geometric perfection the way everything was laid out and the guy whose kitchen it was was a guy called nico ladenis sure and he became he was actually on his way to his third michelin star so i didn't know but i was eating in a in a kitchen that was on fire mm -hmm. that was two years off getting its third star yeah and i hate to say it but it it was it was really tough getting three stars back in those days then i so i had this meal and it blew my mind the lemon tart at the end, I I actually la collapsed like an idiot laughing because it was, you know, when the only reaction is to laugh, yeah. often in adversity. Yes. You know, it's like, and that was what happened You didn't to me. have words for it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, 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 and just laughter came yeah. because it was so perfect. Geometrically, it was perfect. I tapped the plate and the lemon tart wobbled and it's like, surely this is impossible, you know. Yeah. It was this perfect wedge of bright yellow lemon and then the taste was just amazing. And I just, I, I couldn't, I had to find out how they did it. I don't know why that is part of me, but, you know, it's like if I hear a bit of guitar that I really love, I have to find out how to do it. Right. I always said it's like killing the thing you love, you know, Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Each man kills the thing he loves. Yes. And it's almost like you kill it when you learn it. It becomes ordinary. And right. It's like well, this is like, this it. is, it's like the magician's code, right? That yeah. you're never supposed to give up the trick. Yeah. Right. Cause it won't be, or seeing a, That's or right. seeing how they make, uh, do the special effects in a movie. Yeah. It will ruin the illusion. Yeah. And but you um, wanted to have that knowledge. I've always had that. You, that was an irresistible yeah. impulse for you. It's like I've got to find out how they did this. Yeah. And, uh, but for you, I sense it enhances it. Yeah. That yeah. You're, it doesn't, it doesn't actually diminish. No, it's I'm, because I'm familiar with the feeling now. It's like when you conquer what, you know, trying to play the, you know, the guitar solo off a song that I've loved, you know, no, um, Nowhere Man by the Beatles. There's this brilliant guitar solo in it, and I learnt it, and now it's no longer magical. But right. I still love it. Yes. Um, but it, it, it doesn't quite have that magic because I know how it was done. But you retain the memory of the first time you yeah. experienced it. I try to. Yeah, yeah. That's the trick. It's yes. trying to keep things fresh. Yeah. You know, when you're tasting things and remember that, you know, that those magical moments. So then after this meal... I had some friends coming round for dinner yeah. the next night. So it was Friday lunch. So Saturday night I had a group of friends coming round. And I just thought, I know, I'll try cooking the meal that I had at Nico's. So I, the first course was a raviolo, meaning a large, one single large raviolo, of salmon. Mm-hmm. A salmon kind of mousse. So, you know, I made, I made the pasta. I was already good at making pasta. I used to go to Italy on holiday and things. Um, so I was already, I, I made the pasta, I stuffed it with the um, salmon mousse and then, you know, crimped it all mm-hmm. around and cut it with a cutter and just thinking, how, and then I made the sauce and the sauce, I suddenly realised, God, he really exaggerates flavours. You yeah. know, that's what I'd noticed. So I was reducing down the fish stock and then the vermouth and then adding the cream and then tasting it and then realising... Uh, in the book, he says a squeeze of lemon, and normally I'd have left that bit out, but I put the lemon in. I thought, wow. No, I'm sorry. This was uh, his book. The, he had the a chef he had, had a book. He had a book, okay. and I'd I'd um, I'd already got that book, but I'd never really paid that much attention to right. the details of it. Um, but I'd I'd kind of I think I'd worked up to this meal mm-hmm. for a few weeks before. This is what I mean about light bulb moments, you yeah. see. Probably wasn't like in an instant. It was probably over a period of time. And you um, have a good enough taste memory that you were um, mm. you were able to remember yeah. what that meal you'd experienced in the restaurant. Yeah, it was only the like. day before. Yeah. Mm. And then I suddenly realised, so I did that and I made the lemon tart for pudding. And the fact was, was that the flavours were there. Yeah. And my friends were blown away they were like wow how did you learn you know so that kind of made me realize that I was onto something and lots of friends like I then carried on doing this so Marco Pierre White I got his book I already had his book actually White Heat Mm -hmm, I hadn't been to his restaurant it was like gastro porn you know you had the book before you went to the restaurant you know and he looked like (laughs) Keith Richards and he still sounds like Keith yeah sure talks like this you know kind of like a you know kind of um 
a weird. They, they, there's something. I think Keith Richards and Marco Pierre might be the same. That's person. very. Yeah. You know, I've both, never seen them in the same no, room. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which is proof. I've never seen either of them in a room, but <laughs> so um, yeah, Just they beside the point. They uh, amazing kind of. Um, uh, the, the Marco Pierre White's food as well. So I suddenly got into that whole world of, you know, oh, Michelin stars. All oh, right, you can get three. This has got two, blah, blah. What yeah. other restaurants are there yeah. in London with Michelin stars? And then the Rue Brothers and Pierre Kaufman at La Tante Claire and Marco and all that. So I would go to their restaurants, eat the, eat the meal, and then go home and try and cook it. Yeah, and so if I saw something on the menu that was I knew was in the book, I'd order that. But just the general spirit was enough, you know. How far these guys pushed flavour, mm-hmm. pushed seasoning, mm-hmm. and just worked out. And then there'd be tiny little clues in the book which you miss. You know, nobody would say that's really important. You know, right? Like say, you know, for example, you're making a a reduction, a sauce, like a meat sauce. Yeah. So, you know, you fry off the bones and some vegetables and then you pour stock over it, let it infuse, you know, in the oven for an hour or so, then strain it off, reduce it. How far do you reduce it? Then, you know, you'd know by the taste in the restaurant how far they took things. Yes. And then at the end, Marco used to say, add a few drops of lemon. Yeah. And it was like, it's a meat sauce. I don't want my meat sauce, you know, my lamb jus that I've taken out days to make. I don't want it to taste a lemon, but that wasn't why he meant it. The reason you put the lemon in is to to increase the acidity mm-hmm. so that when you put it in your mouth, the size of your cheeks would salivate. And it gave the illusion that the whole mouth was being stimulated by this food. Yes. So that's what it was about. It was about balancing the dish and all those kind of things. And I just taught myself all that. And then I was quite methodical for a bit. Um, I even, I bought Mastering the Art of French Cookery, worked my way through all By the Julia Child, That's sure. right, yeah. yeah. And, and um, Did you uh, cook your way through that book? Uh, pastry. I, I used it to make, learn pastry. Mm-hmm. Um, stocks, maybe. I, yeah. I really did go to town and I kind of educated myself. I taught yeah. myself in a methodical way. So, you know, I made veal stock in my little flat in North right. London. Um, and then I took the veal stock and made a, uh, rid- and, you know, made the, the sauce that you make from veal stock, you know. I you can't know, remember the Demi-glass? name. Demi-glass? Demi-glass, yeah. that's it. Yeah. So the reduced, you know, the, so you take the veal stock, which has already infused the house sure. with its unique f- and stickiness, and um, then you make a demi-glass with that veal stock. Yeah. So, I mean, it would take two or three days, and I, right. you know, getting veal bones and roasting them and yeah. all those kind of processes. But the end results, when a friend would come round and have the dinner, you know, to have a demi-glass made... And I, you know, and uh, in uh, you know for your dinner party. So that was that was how it all kind of. And at what at what point along this trajectory are you thinking this is I'm going to do this? This is going to be my, call, yeah. this is my calling. This is what I'm going to. you know become it, that bit. I don't remember too well. In the book, I talk about I went for a um, lunch with a friend, my friend Lindsay. Yeah. And she knew a chef, and we went to his restaurant, and she just blurted out, Stephen. Well, thinks he wants to become a chef. And I wouldn't have done that. I was still kind of umming and ahhing. But she... Uh, was this is very, one of your friends who had been to dinner at your home? Yeah, okay. and she was, they were great friends of hers, her and her uh, boyfriend. I was with... Um, her boyfriend was a guy called Michael that I was at university with. Okay. We were a big group of friends. We'd go out for meals together and all that. And she she really knew about 
top, top restaurants. Yeah. And she kind of introduced me. That was how I ended up at Nico's <coughs> because she loved that restaurant. Okay. So she was kind of more, she'd grown up in London, lived in the King's Road, you know. Right. That's kind of, you know, when you, you know, you're kind of more worldly. Mm-hmm. If that's, you know, where you've hung out. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, I uh, she blurted that out, and the guy, the chef of the, whose restaurant it was, who was a friend of her family's, said, "Well, come and come do a week here, and you'll know, you'll know. There'll be a, you'll, a time in the week when you'll know." What yeah, the I is. actually admit, I, I mm. this is in the book. Uh, what did yeah. he say? You'll know by Wednesday, or yeah. you'll know, yeah, you'll know by Wednesday. I think he was right as well. Yeah. It was. It was like Wednesday afternoon. And I'm, I just had this kind of feeling of wait a minute. I feel really at home here. Yeah. This is what I love. I'm learning, I'm teaching, you know, and I'm being paid for it. And not that the money was any great shakes, but it just felt, I just knew, I had this feeling. I knew. You felt like you were home. Yeah, yeah, really strange. And, I mean, there were other competing thoughts, you know, like, God, this is the tough choice, you know. Right. Like, I can earn decent money and, you know, and have a nice you know, kind of easy life. Yeah. Or I can do this and it's going to be hard. Was age a consideration? Because you were a little, I mean, by kitchen, to start a career in a professional kitchen, you were, Oh, I mean, no disrespect, but you were what we call over the hill. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Quite right. Quite right. No, I was. I mean, just um, physically. Physically, I was fit as a fiddle because I played a lot of football and I was at my fittest in my early 30s. So you had the stamina that wasn't... Yeah, but you're right. People, I got the weird looks because not only was I physically, I I was older. I was 10, 15 years older than everyone I was working with. I was also from a different background, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, there was nobody to chat about, you know... Proust or, right. uh, or uh, you know, Thomas Hardy or all the things I right. might be. You know, right. I, there weren't any other former history exactly. uh, teachers you know, in the room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, it was a, and it was a bit strange. Yeah. But luckily, they were all such nice, welcoming people. You yeah. Know? Everybody, you know, it, there's a little bit of the we're in the shit. To, sorry, we're in the That's okay. shit together. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're in it together and, and, and we're a team. And yeah. there's a great bond in kitchens. Yes. It, I, I learned that. So, you know, I might have uh, brought something to the, to the gig, but I learned so much from chefs, you know, camaraderie. Yes. You know, I suspect it's the same in the army, you know. Yeah. You never leave any, you know, if a guy goes down, everybody jumps yeah. in, you know. Sure. Um, if you wake up in the morning and you're feeling really rough, you still turn up to work because mm-hmm. you don't want to let your mates down. Yeah. Um, that also forges, I mean, it, it's interesting. I was gonna, maybe this is the back way into what mm. I was about to ask you, which I was going to ask you if it was for you coming in as someone older, someone of a different background, mm. if it was at all socially uncomfortable for you. But, I, but, but again, the intensity of the environment you're creating does tend to make for quick intimacies. I mean, you do tend to become... Yeah. Uh, I mean, people do use the expression, yeah. we're, all, we're war buddies. I've heard yeah. cooks say that, who, like who came trenches. up in a kitchen together. It's like the trenches. Yeah. And, and they, it was about as hygienic as the trenches in some places. <laughs> you know, but did that erase those lines that you perceived uh, when you first came in? In other words, the social, the social lines yeah. or the, the lines yeah. of, of age difference? Yeah, and you realise that there's an awful lot of snobbery and, you know, just rubbish about, uh, you know, about all these things. People, you know, there are decent people and there are idiots in every walk sure. of life, in yes. every strata of society. Yes. And you'll go down to a kitchen and there'll be somebody and they'll have nothing, but they'll give you anything, you know? Yeah, sure. And, and you suddenly realise that people are, 
you know, they're, they're, they're just great people about. And yeah. you shouldn't make any judgments on anybody. Yeah. Never, never underestimate just how great you know, people can be. Well, know? the other thing that I find is, well, I made the comment a minute ago myself, you know, there are a lot of people who end up in kitchens who they're just bored by school. Mm. They just are. They like, they like to do things that are physical. They like to be on their feet. They like to, um, mm. they like that camaraderie you're talking about. They like the noise mm. of a kitchen. I think a lot of people make the mistake of confusing that profile with a lack of intelligence. I yeah. think a lot of those people... They may not have flourished in school, but a lot of them have. Um, I know a lot of chefs who are actually, it's funny, are fascinated by history. Mm. Uh, I have one friend who's fascinated by presidential history. Right. Um, uh, they are, they're often very, they have a huge social uh, IQ. Mm. Um, very quick-witted, very street smart. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways, for, I guess, for intelligence to express itself. Exactly. And I feel yeah. like you find a lot of people of whom that statement is very true in kitchens. True. Very, oh, uh, tell me about it. I mean, people will shock you everywhere you go. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I, I totally agree. And I became very, um, you know, I know it sounds a bit corny, but I was humbled by sure. it. Sure. You know, because I think I'd gone in maybe thinking, you know, the worst. But actually, I was working with these great, great people. Yeah. And, um, and as you know, as you say, there was a camaraderie. Uh, uh, and also, yeah, you're right about the intelligence thing. I mean... Never underestimate people. You know, you'll meet someone and they can, you think they can barely string a sentence together. And then they'll right. hit you with what they love. And when you hear about that, they're, yeah. they're totally eloquent. Well, and also that? people who are just innately great negotiators. They make, ultimately can make very good business people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Skills, yeah. which I just think that academically, and having been a teacher, I had, a, I had early experience of similar yeah. things where the kid who wasn't that bright but was really gifted in certain areas. Yeah. And I just always thought that we failed them, you know, because we had this narrow idea of what intelligence was and right. you, you had to express yourself through the pen. And yet some people just weren't, you know, that just wasn't their gig. They weren't, you know, they weren't able to do that, but they were brilliant at other things. Sure. So you'd get a kid, you know, who who knew all about, you know, birds or something like right. that. And they, but their knowledge would be amazing. Yeah. And, and, um, and yet there was nowhere for that skill to flourish. And right. I always thought that was a failing of ours right. rather than theirs. And I still think that's the case. You know? Yeah. Well, it goes back to, again, there's, uh, there's all these paths that are laid out, right? Mm. Like you go, the, you yourself didn't want that professional no. path that was there. That's right. And I think for some people it's the schooling path. The mm. conventional schooling path doesn't, yeah. doesn't And work. a kitchen feels like freedom to some of these people. Yeah. Right. There's a freedom about a kitchen. Yeah. You can swear. Nobody's going to tell you not to. Right. You can do all these things, you know, that you can't do in ordinary life life and you'll get these people and you'll think you know and then you'll watch them cook and plate up and you think god where did that come from well i've seen you know? if you've ever watched a cook um come to work mm. sometimes they're almost like it's almost like an alter ego mm. sometimes they have nicknames that are unique to yep. the kitchen and they the minute they walk in that door something happens with their strut yeah with their whole energy elevates yeah um you're you're an athlete yeah it, mm. it to me it's similar to um you know, sometimes I'll be going to play tennis. I play every Sunday morning, mm. and and I'll be five minutes from the court, and I'll think to myself, I'm actually a different. I'm going to be a different person in yeah. five minutes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Does this make sense? Totally. And I'm going to be that person yeah. while I'm on the court, and then I'm going to revert to this person. Yeah. But I think for cooks, it's very similar. They there's something that happens when they set foot into that environment. It's almost animalistic. I think it, they're unleashed. I, I think there's uh, there's something in that, and I think that 
there's there's even even goes further than that i think with anything like when you go onto the tennis court i feel that when i used to play cricket or play football I used to play tennis as well. I'd imagine I was at McEnroe was my hero. Sure. And I used to serve, you know, with your feet along the base yeah, yeah. and twist. And I used to do that McEnroe serve and I'd get so much power in it. And, um, and same with football. But I would imagine I was a great footballer or a yeah. great cricketer. Yes. I would imagine I was that person. Yes. And then my body would move like theirs. Yes. And I'd feel almost... And you get that. And you also get that moment, and it happened with learning about food and cooking, where you feel like you're watching from above when you're so in control of what you do that you can almost pop out of your body and have a look from above. Yeah. And everything's flowing and going easy. And yeah. That feeling as well. No, there's all these weird things that happen yeah. when, when you conquer a subject. And, yeah. uh, and, I, look, and I remember that feeling in, in, in other things I'd done. Um, and when I came to cook those feelings would come back again. I knew that I was kind of, things were going well. You right. Know? Um, you know, cooking for 40 people and you could still chat to someone. Right. But you're kicking oven doors shut and you're flicking fish in a pan and you're, then you've got something, you know. That feeling and of mastery. Yeah, that yeah. you're totally on top of what you're doing. Yeah, it's funny. I was at a comedy club um, Saturday night and this guy was, well, I forget his name, but he was doing his, mm. his, uh, his 15 minutes or whatever. And in the middle of it, as he was talking, there was a stool on stage and he just pulled it over and he's just, as he was talking, kind of casually hopped up on the stool and kept, and I thought, I cannot imagine being so comfortable telling this, going through this routine in front of, I don't know, 150 Mm. people on a Saturday night in New York that I would just pull up a stool as I'm doing it and just sit down. Mm. I mean, it was, it was an amazing, he's conquered it. He's in his element, as they say. And there's, you know, you don't need to all of your brain to be focused on something. Right. You're doing it almost, uh, you're just doing it. And then, uh, you um you've got room to you know look at it from above or whatever you know yeah so now that's uh, i had a lot of those moments when i was cooking so um quickly before we go to break can you tell yeah. there was you know you you've talked about all your love for the these michelin level restaurants mm-hmm. but there was an element of these restaurants that uh you would talk yeah. about this you talk about this in the book that you connect to your punk instincts yeah yeah the elitism and the 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 um the uh, the fact that you had to go to Park Lane and dress up to eat this food, you know, and needed to have certain financial yeah. Um, why my view even assets. back then was why why can't you why can't we just have this food in a you know in a pub yeah um, because I felt like um, I felt that it was exclusive mm-hmm. I thought felt it was elitist yeah and I thought why can't you know it can't be that hard yeah you know you don't need and also, was there a way to do this without 40 people on the floor, right. without 30 people in the kitchen? Because in the end, if you whittle away all of the other stuff, it's a plate with a sauce, yeah. some vegetables, and a piece of fish yeah. or meat or whatever. That's all it is. And this was, a, this was an, I'll call it an epiphany that you yeah. had. The way you describe it in the book, you had it at that first at, at Nico. Yeah, yeah. That was an immediate... Um, uh, you had a moment of clarity, I guess, that you were able yeah. to sort of cut through... Or see through all the layers yeah, that were like surrounding the, the, those things you just named, yeah, it, to the essence of it. Yeah, and I, I've al- I'd always had that a bit. Yeah, you know, I had that with music, and, right? Yeah, you know, the same thing. You know, uh, a similar thing. You know, when all that, all those bands were getting. 
bigger than they, you know. I, I can always remember wanting it to go back to a little club room in a, you know. Three or four guys and. With a guitar, bass, and drums. And that was and, it. And, you know, if it was good enough for the Beatles, you yeah. know, in the cavern, then yeah. Christ, what, you know. And, and I never felt like it was progression to play in front of a lot of people. It was just a way of making more money. And I felt a bit like that with the restaurants. It was like. You know, it wasn't, it didn't feel to me like a lot of it was necessary. Um, actually, when I look back on it, to create a great restaurant, you probably do need 25, 30 chefs, um, you know, to do it. But I, I just thought, let's have a go and do this with four, you know, or yeah, three. Or right. I started on my own. Yeah. The sportsman, I was on my own. Yeah. Uh, there was no one else in the kitchen. So, you know, if I'm going to do that, right. how am I going to make this work? Yeah. So I just cut to the essence, you know. So I want to get that story. We'll take a quick break, and we'll come back and talk about that. We are chatting with, uh, with Stephen Harris of The Sportsman, both the restaurant and the book, which is now out. And we will be right back after this break. Lucky like a four-leaf My theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself, why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire of which you can testify by looking at, at uh, Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity. And they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing, but very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's uh, pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible, but it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. <laughs> you know it as well as I do. Uh, the grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. 
Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And we are back chatting with Stephen Harris of The Sportsman, who has burst into song <laughs> during our break. Do you know what it is? I don't. It was here, there, and everywhere. Oh, <laughs> not right. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't write, but I do know that song. Um, yeah. Or it was just a bunch of chords. It was just some chords, though, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? We don't know. Right, we don't yeah, have yeah. to. Uh, we don't know royalties for <laughs> no. that song. No, I think they've got enough. We don't want to. Well, that's true too, but yeah, we don't want to yeah. bankrupt Heritage Radio Network. Um, so, Stephen, tell us yeah. the 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 sportsmen. Well, there's an, if you don't and and you don't have in some short mm-hmm. version. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you tell us about um, the moment of. Uh, Rediscovering, I guess, this space and uh, its its potential, and oh. how it fit with uh, the way you were starting to think about the kind of restaurant you might like to have. Well, I'd been looking for a restaurant for about three or four years, and I kind of worked in friends' restaurants to teach myself how restaurants worked. I, yeah. I, I cooked. I taught myself to cook separately. Yeah. And I worked in a couple of friends' restaurants, um, but there was just one day. It was Boxing Day, the day after Christmas. I was out with a friend in his little convertible blue MG midget. And we used to go out for a pub, like, for a pint at Christmas to sure. get away from, you know, Christmas. And we were on our way back from somewhere and we, we went down this funny road in Whitstable, uh, which runs along the sea. It's a totally mm-hmm. deserted road. <coughs> and we came across the sportsman and we remembered, oh, look, it's the sportsman. I haven't been in there for years. Let's yeah. pop in. So we popped in to have a quick drink before we went home. And I'd been looking for a restaurant or a pub or somewhere to cook. I'd, you know, I'd put offers in on places, all that kind of stuff. And anyway, we're sitting in the back bar and um, uh, just slowly, as my friend was talking to me, I suddenly realised I was kind of looking around and I suddenly thought, wait a minute, it's a big building. It's kind of got a car, it's got a car park. Because my dad always said, because he was the real estate agent, he was saying, always find somewhere with a car park. And That's so, great. So, uh, <laughs> and then gradually, but it was such a disgusting looking pub. Yeah. It was hideous. Um, how, big, how big a space? It's big. I mean, it's a big old, uh, you know, it's a, I, I can't really imagine. It's got one big front bar yeah. and two side bars. Okay. Um, with a kind of conservatory on the outside. Okay. Um, it was a big space, but the yeah. thing is, it had been a hotel for visitors um, to, um, you know, the sea. Yeah. But then English people started going abroad on holidays to Spain and Greece and mm-hmm. countries like that. So it had lost its reason to be there. Yeah. Um, and so it was dying. It was dying. And you could see that. Yeah. And nobody could make it work because there was no village. There was no town. Why would you have a pub in a you know, in the middle of nowhere. It was by the sea, so in August and July it would do well because there were a lot of people coming down. But, yeah, so anyway, I was sitting in that bar and and I just thought, this is the place, you know. Right. And so I set about trying to get hold of it. It was a leased, it was a brewery who owned it. I knew the brewery because I'd done a bit of work for them as a chef. Yeah. In fact, they wanted to kind of take me on as a kind of... um, 
What's that when you go in and try and sort problems out? You know, a bit of a like kind a of corporate a, chef or a consulting yeah, chef. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I, you know, I think because I was, you know, quite well educated, they fell for that old. Oh, mm-hmm. he, he must know what he's right. talking about. So right. they, um, they, uh, I, I'd done a bit of troubleshooting for mm-hmm. them. I'd been to another a pub and sorted out a kitchen for yeah. them. So I knew them. So I contacted them. Uh, my brother Phil, who's a partner in the business with me. Um, and I then put in a kind of a bid, not a bid, but we said, look, anyway, cut a long story short, six months, eight months later, we were, we, we, uh, we got it. So the restaurant opened in 99. November 99. Is this, you bought the restaurant in 99? Uh, we, we bought the lease. In 99? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. And, uh, we opened just before the millennium. So we had two months in the last century. Wow. That was going to be the... I wanted to call the book The Sportsman a 21st Century Restaurant, but I didn't. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> yeah. As in, I don't know if anyone would have no. taken you to task for that. No, but, well. but you... Uh, so what was your original vision for this restaurant? Would, did it kind of go back to that moment where you wanted to sort of have this stripped down... Um, I mean, I, I love the way you applied your punk sensibility to this mm. in the book, but this sort of stripped down... Um, the 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 ex, the making food that would be that pleasurable to people, mm. and I guess that's sophisticated. We would yep. say accessible to anybody. Yeah, that was yeah. the yeah that was kind of the mission. Yeah, the idea was that you know in the end it's just food. So take something like pork. Yeah. You know? So what's the difference? In those days, posh restaurants didn't serve pork. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know why? Because that it wasn't regarded as highfalutin enough. Right. You know, they would it would be. You know, they'd serve fillet of... But, you know, fine dining. They're just idiots, you know. And nobody said, asked why. Yeah. Nobody said, why do you only serve that little strip of meat out of the cow? Right. You know? Why do you serve... And it it just was idiotic to me. This to you went hand in hand with the sort of pretension of the rest of it. And and they strip out all the fun, all the flavour. Like, you know, they were too posh to chew or Mm -hmm. something like that. You know, why? I didn't get it. And... Some chefs were, were breaking against that. You know, yeah. Marco Pioi did things like daub of beef. and mm-hmm. So there were other people doing it, but I just found fine dining absurd. Um, and I just thought there was a style. So I wanted it to be like country cooking taken to its ultimate, really kind of, you know, like the sauces, all beautiful jeweled sauces that sure. sparkled, meat that was perfectly cooked. And I very quickly realised, you know, cabbage from the farm down the road that was just picked that day yeah. and then served but really simply yes. just tossed in a bit of butter and a little bit of lemon juice and salt and that's it you know so to let the real taste because I just found in I'd go into fine dining restaurants and I'd know that that was supposed to be ratatouille for example yeah. but you couldn't taste anything because they diced it up so small you know there was all these kind of and cooked stylistic. it until it all sort of mushed together right yeah and there was yeah. no nothing flavor nothing was decipherable yeah exactly yeah. you know you couldn't go oh just got a bit of um, courgette there or right. zucchini for you sure um, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff you know <laughs> thank you for the translation um, that's right, from, from English <laughs> <laughs> yes that's right yeah uh, so, I just kind of felt like um, the whole thing was was uh, was misplaced. So yeah. I wanted to take all the 
good things from fine dining, mm-hmm. like perfectly cooked meat and fish, beautiful sauces, all the really good things like that. I, I don't mean the standards no. like the, the usual things you expect. I mean the standard of excellence, yes, the standard the, of flavor. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The seasoning, yeah. you know, well seasoned. Yes. You know, not forgetting to season something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you can't have that. Yes. So all the, all the really good things about fine dining and then edit out and get rid of all the silly things. Yeah. You know, like waiters running to kind of move your chair and take your napkin and follow you to the toilet and all yeah. that stuff. You know, I you know just drove me balmy. Yeah, um, and you know, like you or pour your wine. What what's wrong with you? Can't you pour your wine? You know, and now I understand why they do it a bit more. You know, they might they might claim, but I've never got that. You, you know? mean you can understand to some degree why people might want that experience to come with a certain amount of pampering or... Yeah, you know, it's a treat. It's your birthday. You go to a restaurant. You want to be spoiled pour, a little bit. They pour your wine for you. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I still prefer to pour it myself. But right. I, I'm, I'm a bit more relaxed. I used to yeah. have to fight them off, but now yeah. I, I don't bother. But, yeah, you know, if you're going out, you know, to your local pub to eat a meal in the evening, yeah. you know, in, on a Wednesday night, yes. do you really want all that? No, no you, want to, you want to be left alone. Exactly. Yeah. And you don't want to put on a jacket and a tie. Right. I was amazed at the amount of good restaurants in New York that tell you how to dress. Yeah. It's like not only do they want $300, they also want to tell you how you dress. Yeah. And I just find that astonishing. Yeah. You know, it's like mind your own business. I'll tell you, know, and I'm not trying to be confrontational about it. I just find it really surprising. Yeah. You know? Interesting. So... Can we t- uh, there's two things I'd love to talk about. Um, th- these, again, are in the book, but they're also very... Well, not also. It's The book is The Sportsman, as is The Restaurant. Mm. Um, the way you... Uh, the analogy you draw between music mm-hmm. and food and, mm-hmm. and how you look at the composition or the construction of, of different types of uh, uh, flavor yep. in a dish. Can you just speak about this for a moment? Because I really think it's interesting. Yeah. So what's the baseline in a dish? Well, I mean, I... I I kind of, what happens was, is that I realised that when you finish a sauce, yeah. so let's say you've just made a lovely daub of beef, you mm-hmm. know, slow braised ox cheek with yes. a red wine sauce. So you've made it all, you've got the daub of beef, you've separated it, you've reduced down the sauce. Yeah. So you've got a lovely red wine sauce. Now, how do you finish it? Now, that just suddenly re- reminded me of when you're in the studio and you're EQing. So you're mixing a track. Right. Now, EQ stands for? E- equalizing. Mm-hmm. So it used to be, I, I'm so out of date with the technology, you used to have things called graphic equalizers mm-hmm. where you could take all the range of, um, you know, all the ranges that, from the treble to the bass yes. and you could adjust them yes. until it sounded right to your ears. Yeah. And I would always have to put more treble on because I, I, I'm a treble kind of person. Okay. And I was the same with acidity which is hence the lemon, you know, in a mm-hmm. meat sauce. You know, I'm not adding lemon, I'm adding acidity. Yes. And we, in fact, in my kitchen, we, if you want a lemon, you say, can you pass the acidity regulator? Is that right? Yeah, because I wanted I to, people to challenge what the notion of uh-huh. a lemon was. It has right. many functions and roles. So I just reminded me, right, you know, hang on. So the, the lemon is the treble. Yeah. Salt's the kind of base, you know, and you can adjust those really easily. Yeah. And then the middle... Is is difficult because that's umami, and it's that comes about through some processes. So, for example, uh, you you get 
concentration of flavour by various different varying methods. Salt, adding salt can help to boost the flavour. Sure. Adding lemon can help to widen the flavour in your mouth. Yeah. Just like you can when you're mixing a track. And then, then umar, you know, what happens is there's something, you know, in music compression. Yeah. So you hit a drum and it goes boom. Now, if you want that drum to sound tight, you add compress, you compress the sound. Yes. And it goes boom. Right. And it basically it focuses the sound so mm-hmm. that when you're listening to it, you know, it has a it has a percussion to it, it has a sound, you know. Yeah, I well, love Well, the this. same thing with the source. It's the same thing with the source. You can you can compress the source by reducing That's it. reduction. Yeah. Yeah. But also there are processes before that where if you got it wrong, you're never going to get it back. So, and it's the same in music. If there's no, for example, deglazing. Yes. If you've got a source and you want to deglaze this and you deglaze when you fry the vegetables, when you fry the meat, yeah. when you add the tomatoes, yes. when you add the wine, each one is what's called a, an opportunity to deglaze yeah. and therefore to I- exaggerate the middle flavours. Mm-hmm. You're um, layering. Yeah, it's yeah. layering. It's yep. it's an opportunity. So yeah. if you're following a recipe and it keeps saying, right, fry the onions till they start to brown, now add some wine, you're now deglazing yeah. the pan, yes. taking all those little nice bits off the bottom, then maybe you're doing that with the meat and deglaze it. Yeah. Every deglaze is a concentration of the flavour. So... I just it just felt to me the same as making a really good track. You know, you had yeah. to remember all these processes. Right. Treble, bass, umami. You can add umami by what you add to the, you know, onion, uh, mushrooms, dried yes. mushrooms yeah. particularly, tomato. All yes. these things make it more tasty, you know, yeah. because you're adding the umami. And I just felt when I was finishing the sauce off often, I just felt like I was mixing a track, you yeah. know. So... That analogy just works with me. And I say in the book, you know, some people see food in colour, and I, I don't. Yeah. But I love the idea. Right. It's such a lovely idea. I wish I did. Wouldn't right. it be great? It'd be really you don't have a choice about that. No, no, yeah. no. I mean, it's how you're built. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. just what works for you. And, yes. And so then I, you know, and I realised while I was writing the book that I had, there were so many musical analogies yeah. that, you know, uh, that I really... I thought, well, you know, I, I have to be honest with myself. So, for example, I would, you know, the idea of the perfect three-minute pop song. Mm-hmm. There was a time in England when we had, like, the Jam and the Buzzcocks. Yes. yes. Every two, three months, they'd come out with a brand-new single. It wasn't even on an album. Yes. Drive Americans mad. It's like, why isn't that on an album? It's like, well, because it's a sing- it's a right. standalone thing. And so we'd have, you know, a town called Malice and Going Underground and Ever Fallen in Love with Someone You Never Fallen in Love. Yeah. Know, these were events every three months, perfect three-minute pop songs. And I just loved that. And I just thought, yeah. why can't a dish be like that? Yeah. You know, just a beautifully perfect harmonic thing. Yes. And then you send it out and that's... You know, and that and it, it inspires me. Well, there's. Uh, I'm. I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to name the exact dish, but mm. in the book there is. One, there's a dish. It's just a fish, and you say yeah. very. You say in very pointedly in the head note, the introduction to the dish, that you love the idea of this particular. I think it has some kind of a parsley sauce on uh, it. It's a slip sole in seaweed butter. Seaweed butter. Yeah. And you say that you 
wanted to challenge the notion of what a complete dish was yeah. that you wanted you didn't mind that people would receive this and say where's the vegetable exactly right this is sort yeah. of analogous to what you're saying yeah, right yeah, now yeah. this it's is a when, three minute single exactly yeah. so why add some noodling on to make it to more? something that seems that's complete right. you, in and of itself exactly and yeah. all you do is you detract from that and i that dish was what taught me how minimalism works i yes. didn't i understood intellectually what minimalism was but this is what you see that dish is it's a local fish, yeah. slip sole, it's dover sole, a yes. small dover sole. The butter's made from cream from the farm. The salt in the butter comes from the sea outside the pub. Yeah. And the seaweed comes from the beach by the pub. Yeah. So it's all just done from all what's around us. And it was so perfect and holistic and all the loose ends tied up. I just thought, and I, I, I thought, how can I serve this? How can I? And then in the end, the bold decision was just as it is. Right. Because if I added any more, I detracted you would from what it, it was. Yeah. yeah. And then I understood. I use the analogy of an art gallery. If there's one painting on the on a lovely white wall, yeah. you look at the painting. If there's yeah. fifty on a red wall, yes, you're all over the place. Sure. You don't know which one to look at. Yeah. And that's an anal- again an analogy. So here is something perfect. And so we serve it as a starter yeah. with nothing else. Right. And, 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 and it, it's better for that than it would be if I'd added anything. Yeah. So this is a perfect segue. You just explained what goes into that dish and how it comes from basically right outside your door. Yep. Um, can you speak to me about how you apply the concept of terroir mm. to food? Yeah. Well, first of all, where we are, I didn't realize it until I was five years in mm. that... Uh, I am smack bang in the middle of the um, land that used to be owned by the kitchens of Canterbury Cathedral. Mm -hmm. It's in the Doomsday Book, which was uh, written in 1086. Okay. It was an audit of Britain uh, ordered by William the Conqueror to find out how much tax and uh, what he owned. Yes. And so I looked up Sea Salter and Sea Salter, it said, the borough of Sea Salter alert immediately because I knew that borough wait a minute that's a special place not everywhere is a borough sure it it had special tax status I thought why did it have special tax status next line said is owned by the kitchens of the Archbishop of Canterbury yeah so that's just weird you know sure anyway I met an archaeologist friend long story short he was writing a paper this is your friend Tim yep Tim he was writing a paper for the archaeological review in Kent about the area surrounding the sportsman called um, Sea Salter Swine and Seafood. And the article was about how, um, you know, proper academically researched and yeah. uh, article was about how the area around the sportsman was the larder for Canterbury Cathedral because of its unique location. So a terroir is a, a, a series of interconnecting features that make something special so here you've got a salt marsh now a salt marsh means that you can make salt because the sea floods onto it right so they can make salt if you can make salt in the middle ages you could get through winter because you can slaughter a cow or a pig and salt the meat and preserve it yeah exactly and then you eat it through the winter until summer comes around again when there's stuff growing that was the first thing then uh, because it's a salt marsh it's by an estuary yeah. When you've got an estuary, you've got seafood. So you've got oysters, mussels, cockles, wenkles, wilks, yes. w- uh, whelks, winkles, and everything. Estuary. Then you've got the sea because yeah. it's, you know, then you've got bass, turbot, brill, dove soles, blah, blah. So anyway, then I found out that the farm that I'd been buying meat from was called Monk's Hill Farm. And I, I knew it was called Monk's Hill Farm, but then suddenly the monks from Canterbury. 
So I then found out that they that they'd farmed there. Yeah. And then I looked around all the hedgerows, and there were, you know, elderberries, elderflowers, blackberries, slowberries, um, all this stuff. Yeah. Then I went on the beach and started using the seaweed. Then I ra- realised oh, it's called the sportsman because there was sh- they used to shoot. Right. And it was it was a game pub, and the birds came because of the estuary, because the birds ate the shellfish. And then all of a sudden I realised that it was this kind of holistic, rolling event. Yeah. And then, so I wrote down a list of everything that was in that area. Right. Of course it was a larder in the Middle Ages. They weren't idiots. Right. They had to, this was survival, this was life and death. You can't go down the corner shop and buy what they, this was life and death in those days. And so they had realised that this land was very special that had all sorts of food opportunities in it. Sure. And that was why it was a, the Archbishop of Canterbury had given it to his kitchen and said, that's where you feed us from. Then at Canterbury Cathedral, Beckett, Thomas Beckett, the Archbishop, mm-hmm. was assassinated in 1170. And suddenly masses of people came to pay pilgrimage to sure. Beckett. And yeah. so Canterbury became this tourist town, you know, full yeah. of religious tourists, pilgrims. Um, and they had to be fed, so that's where a lot of it came from. And I used that as an inspiration to make a tasting menu. This so was a galvanising moment in the world. Very much so. Yeah. It, was, it was the moment when I went from being somebody who copied other people's yes. food, and that's how I taught myself to cook, yeah. to, to having a style of my own mm-hmm. that, that was unique. And I, I'd worked that out. I'd realised that great chefs, Michel Bras, um, Oliver Rollinger, Pierre Gagné, Alan Passard, all these great French chefs yeah. had all a style of their own. Gagné, the kind of jazz chef, yeah. you know, Alan Passard, the gardener, um, Michel Bras, the forager, you know, they all, yeah. um, Oliver Rollinger, the, the spice historian. Um, and that was when I realised, God, I'm on something here. I can create unique food yeah. because my ingredients are unique because I What, what, I go what now would you put to yourself... Oh, blimey. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I could. Oh, that's interesting. You've got me there. Would it be the historian? Probably the historian, yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny. Listening to you tell the story of your mm. friend's uh, research and how this sort of was a catalyst for you, yeah. it is striking that all of these um, moments in your these phases in your life mm. seem to have flown, uh, flow into this restaurant. Yeah, yeah. There's the punk yeah. The punk bit and there's the history, the history bit and That's your right. culinary. I yeah. mean, it all seems to almost funnel yeah. into this restaurant, what this restaurant's become. That's interesting, yeah. No? I mean, it's... It's, it's a bit spooky, yeah. And I, I, I say in the book, there were a lot of spooky times when... Well, it's that same essay where you say you didn't believe in light bulb moments, yeah. but it was getting to be spooky. It yeah. was, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, I don't know why. Um, I, and I was saying the Gary Player thing, the hardy work, the lucky you get. yes. And I was working so hard that yeah. I think luck just falls into your lap when you work that hard. What also seems to me, and I'm not just trying to flatter you, but mm. it seems to me that you have, um, what I, I've seen this in a lot of people, who it's, it's just such a gift that, to be able to recognize moments as they occur, mm. right? To be able to have an, have an epiphany, but then act on it. True, And yes. follow it. And yes. A lot of people have that light bulb moment, but don't and then it through. just sort of passes. Yeah, that's interesting. But you seem to have a real um, confidence uh, that in your own instinct, and I guess your talent, uh, or your work ethic, mm. that you're willing to sort of chuck it all and, and follow. Th- I mean, even the way you change the, yeah. the sort of uh, the offering of the restaurant based on this 
yeah. this tr- this paper your friend was writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think a lot of things just appeared. It, it yeah. seemed, it seemed like a beam of light. It seemed obvious. It seemed right. like a path. I have to follow that. Yes. You know, this land was owned. It was the larder for Canterbury Cathedral, and I'm in the middle cooking yeah. a bit of it. Like yes. you know, some of this stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm using their old farm. You know, and there's and around that time, you know, I suppose uh, people were starting this idea of cooking the landscape. Yeah. You see, it always appealed to me. Yeah. You know, when I wake up in the morning, you were right on the cusp of all this. Yeah. Well, yeah. that was the thing. Was that was the weird thing? Was that we kind of what was a little idea in my part of the world. I suddenly met other chefs from, you know, like Rennie Redzepi at Noma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he was doing... He was kind of a similar kind of thing, which is, you know, trying to cook from a landscape that didn't look that promising. Yeah. And yet he managed to make sublime... Now, I'm not comparing myself because his food is sublime. But he... um, He was... He was along the set. And when he came to the sportsman, he looked at me and went, you've been doing this a while, haven't you? Because I'd showed him all my experiments. Yes. Yeah, making our own salt and our own hams. That's another thing that we did was this artisan idea of making your own ingredients. Yes. So we'd make our own bacon, we'd make our own salt, we'd make our own butter. People would say, why do you bother? You can just buy them from a supplier. It's like, because they taste better. Of course. Now, the salt is one that I can see. That's a romantic notion. So I can see that making salt is romance. But what a notion. So, you know, where are you going to take your girlfriend to eat? Oh, I know this restaurant where they make their own sauce. Sure. I mean, it's, it's a line, isn't it? Uh, but the bacon tastes better. The butter tastes better than any I'd had anywhere else. So, but it's also so consistent with what you've decided you wanted to be, right? Yeah. I mean, that it comes from the, you said, it comes from the, the sea just outside. Yeah. Uh, the restaurant, I mean, it's it's funny. I remember years ago, um, I was lucky, I, I've interviewed him several times, but mm. I was interviewing Thomas Keller, mm. and he made this comment, um, you know, in the kitchens at the at his restaurants, mm. they use green tape to label everything, and they, mm. they don't rip the tape, they cut the tape, right? Uh, now, you can rip tape. Yeah. But it's part and parcel of, he would hate that I use this word, because he's tried to shake it for years, but of his perfectionism, yep. that... You know, he he would say you either do something a certain way or you don't. There's no on-off switch. And in his restaurants, it's exactitude is a defining yeah. thing, right? Yeah. And it seems to me in your restaurant, this devotion to being of the of the place where you are mm. is, of course, you're going to make your own do your yeah. own salt. Yeah, that's why would right. you not? Yeah, it, it, and the landscape, you know, it, it, it's why would that it. be the thing you don't do? Yeah, that would be crazy, <laughs> wouldn't it? But as I say, um, it's it's such a romantic idea that we that 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 we ran with it, and and we and it took us, you know, to where we are. You know? Yeah, um, and I think that's the appeal of that's why people come from all over the place. And, yes, and and that you know sometimes I have to remind myself, you know, that that I mean, you know, like things like when we started making our own butter. Yeah. Yeah, that was just my one silly idea. And I know why I did it. Because yeah. my mum used to say, when I whipped the cream on Sunday lunch, I'd whip the cream and she'd say, don't over whip it or you'll get butter. And it was my mum's voice in my, he- in my head yeah. when I had this litre of amazing cream, yeah. unpasteurised Jersey cream. Yeah. And it was just about to go out of date. And I thought, I can't throw this away. And then my mum's voice, don't over whip it. Or get it. So yeah, I put yeah. it into a cup, blended the crap out of it. Yeah. And I had butter suddenly. And now every restaurant you go to seems to make its own butter. Or, you know, it's a big thing, you know. Yes. And yet I can remember the moment when I thought that. And, and, and um, 
nobody made their own butter, right. you know? And now it's kind of become part of, you know, one of those things that you it's do. part of the moment, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of, you know... It's where we are now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, that, and that, I suppose, accidentally, because I didn't mean all that, accidentally, within this little project, which just meant something personal to me, developed an idea that took it beyond that and, yeah. made, and was attractive to, yeah. to a lot of chefs from, you know, because we get chefs coming from all over the world. How, um, how fully formed do you feel at this point? Do you feel like there are more big evolutions in your future? <laughs> That's a great question. I wish I knew. Um, You're open to it. Yes, I am. I am. I try to, um, you know, when you, when you have such a big idea, it's like trying to follow it up. It's yeah. like the big album, you know, how do you right. follow up right. an album, you know? Well, I, I prob- and you also don't want to make one album too... You yeah. don't want to make the album when they say, oh, he's lost it. Exactly. Yeah. So... Um, so, you know, I, I have other concepts, by the way. Uh-huh. So this, like, super local terroir concept yeah. is just one of the concepts I cook with. All they are is little ideas in the back of my mind. Right. I have this other one called Bistro Chic, and it's, um, it's where it's a dish, and I have a restaurant in my mind where I'm walking through an old town in France somewhere, and I'm walking on cobblestones, and I come across a restaurant and you go in and there's a genius in there, a genius cooking. And you have this bright, beautiful food that radiates and all the dishes are witty and funny. And that, I cook dishes for that restaurant in my head. Mm -hmm. So like I cook, so like there are some dishes I do which don't fit the terroir concept, but would work in the chic bistro. Can you tell me one? Yeah, I mean... Um, I did one with smoked haddock with a curried carrot sauce, mm-hmm. which might sound weird, but not at all. It's kind yeah. of a little play on um, kedgeree, yeah. but it's also uh, a, a carrot soup, a bit like um, uh, Bernard Loiseau used to cook. Sure, was one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that kind of thing. It's bright. It's yeah. colourful. Yeah. It's unexpected, and it has a certain wit to it. Um, yes. So I cook with that concept in my head as well. So And you say in your head, you mean that literally. You've never actually cooked these dishes. Oh, no, I do these dishes. Oh, you have. And sometimes yeah. I put them on our a la carte menu, not okay. the tasting menu. Right. Because that's very strict, local. That's the album. Exactly. Right? That has, that's that's the not the three-minute single. Yeah, that's right. right. It's the triple <laughs> album. Yeah, that's right. So I do, yeah, and the three-minute yeah. pop song, you know. So, so I, I, try and, um, I try and get out a bit yeah. off, more often, yeah. you know rather than just wandering around beaches picking up stuff. That's great. Um, but, you know, when, you know, that idea that just happened to become, if you like, the big style of restaurants, you know, the super yeah. local, natural, you know, foragey thing. Yeah. You know, lots of people were doing bits of it, but it yeah. all kind of came together. Yes. Um, so, you know, I'm not claiming originality on it. I took the, some ideas from it, you know. But it did seem to kind of... The history was what nobody else probably would have come up with yeah you know i think with history you know the idea of being able to read the doomsday book and find out what it said and yeah. understand the importance of it and where it led on to and also for you to be at the moment <coughs> in your own uh evolution where you were at that point where you were ready to start um um yeah conceiving dishes more from scratch right exactly a and, style and which of my again own, tracks yeah. your musical progression right from imitating exactly. the guy you saw on stage to being able to come Writing up with your own songs. yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, the book, we should just say, I mean, everything we're talking about, I should say, this all tracks, uh, maybe not in a linear fashion, but 
what's in the book. Your 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 story is in the book. Mm. Uh, a couple of several essays that are all dated. Um, mm. that talk about major stages in your own evolution and the evolution of the restaurant. Mm. Um, we didn't really get to it, but that's fine. There's profiles of some key yeah. people in the restaurant. Yeah. There's beautiful photography yeah. um, throughout. And uh, and I think it's about 50 recipes of, 50, yeah. of food that um, seems very, a lot a lot of it very doable. Oh, it's very home. doable, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, There's a couple in there which would be tricky, but yeah. I, you see, I didn't want to be patronised when I was learning to cook and right. I bought books. So I've worked on the same principle that like, I'll tell you how we do it in the restaurant. And then take it, it or leave it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you can work out how to cut corners or simplify it yes. yourselves, you know. And can we say, uh, people obviously, uh, people who have been to the restaurant can have the experience that you had as a young cook and try to replicate it. Yeah. And people who don't, uh, can I take a leap and say you'd want them to probably apply their own taste yeah. to being bold, seasoning uh, as they see fit, and and going yeah. to a place where where it pleases them, yeah, and not of course. And, and and using acid and and salt and all of that, yeah, to I full mean, effect. Well, that's right. I think that um, if you read the book, I hope that because I've explained the process by which I learned and yes. and, and and everything. I've had you know young chefs coming up saying they were really inspired by the story more than anything. You yes, know? you know, just like just. You know, I'd love to read, you know, Thomas Keller. I'd love to read him writing about, you know, the moment that he found the French laundry. I'm yeah. sure he has. You know, in fact, I, I, maybe he has. But, yeah. you know, all these people, because stories are interesting. Everybody's individual story right. is interesting. Um, but as I say, and I've been saying it a lot lately, the reason it's interesting is because it worked. Yeah. You see, I could be a guy who'd opened a restaurant in the middle of nowhere and no one ever came. Right. What, it could have been a failure. No one knows those stories. The reason it's an interesting story is because we, you know, we won the top restaurant in Britain two years in a row. Yeah. You know, it's kind of... So... But I'm interested in everybody's story. But this one, I think, goes somewhere, you know? There's a... Yeah. You know, I hope not the end of the story, but right. we've certainly reached a kind of plateau, a yeah. level, you know, which... Um, you know, I, anyway, I hope it. I think the the main thing is I like the episodic nature of the writing because mm-hmm. I think that appeals to people now. Yeah, because uh, it's a bit like I don't know a film like Pulp Fiction. You know, oh, have we gone back? I have love we gone back. You're, We've gone you're, forward. you're We've talking gone, my language. Yeah, yeah. But I you love, know, I love the way he moves. Tarantino does yeah, that in his movies and the episodic nature. So yeah. when I first wrote it, I thought I was going to have to patch it all together, like a memoir. Yeah, and I said yeah. to the editor, I said. We're going to have to put all these together. Yeah. And then she one day kind of said, sent me them as a... And it was like... And it reminded me of Pulp Fiction. It was like, oh, right, back there, then there, yes. then there. And the episodic nature, it's like treat your readers like adults. They'll get it. They'll understand that, you know, you don't have to put this all in one long piece. No. In fact, it's more digestible in essays. So to speak. It? But yeah. it's also, it's also um, you know, I'm, I'm stunned having written a number, co-authored a number of cookbooks with chefs. Mm. I, I was stunned when I first got told this when we would do book signings and whatnot. You know, mm. people do sit with cookbooks and read them, mm. um, but I don't think they want to sit down and read them the way you read a novel. So I think yeah. the fact that it is broken up into these pieces yeah. uh, does lend itself to the way people want to read these yeah. books. And also the book is of a size, though, um, that you, you're you not going to mind bringing it into the kitchen. It is meant yeah. to be cooked from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clearly. Yeah. It's both. I yeah. mean, you know, I hope so anyway. Yeah. The writing was fun. I mean, I really enjoyed the writing. Yeah. The, the recipes are like 
going back and doing the sheet music, if you like. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Well, there's not a shot. I'll quote, <laughs> I'll quote uh, you know, I'll quote, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but one of my favorite lines ever about recipes, which is in the French Laundry Cookbook, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, that... The, you know, uh, recipes and what chefs do are, 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 are cross purposes to some degree. Mm. Um, and the line that Keller has, the kind of the culmination of that paragraph in that book is recipes have no soul. Right. The soul is what you as the cook bring to it. Bring to it. And that is the thing that, I remember that line, no yeah. recipe will ever have. Yeah. Um, which is why I, probably yeah. why I said what I said a few minutes ago, that people who do come to this book mm. need to come prepared to yeah. infuse it with what they with something of themselves something of themselves yeah yeah true um can i put you on the spot can you just strum a little as we oh, sign off you want to sign off what do you want uh well first of all i just want to say it's been great to meet you and getting your story and anything you could improvise okay so as we fade out <laughs> in stephen harris's hotel room in new york city we're going to thank him for being here and recommend to you the new book the sportsman out from fiden currently available uh, and a great read and uh, I'm sure great to cook from as well chef sorry Stephen thank you for joining us <laughs> and we'll see you back next week on Andrew Talks to Chefs Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.